0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio, I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm pleased to share the opening keynote from the 2019 Chief Medical Officer Summit about how Sage Therapeutics developed and received approval for the first treatment specifically for postpartum depression, featuring Dr. Steve Keynes. The session is called, How the CMO of Sage Therapeutics Positioned a New Indication for FDA Approval. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Enjoy the podcast. Oh, well, first, I want to thank the organizers of the meeting. Uh, I, uh, as a person who hasn't attended this meeting before, I have been um, sitting in silence in my office in Cambridge thinking I was the only one that was doing all of those things. Uh, and seeing the company grow, seeing my team grow, and learning all of the nuances of how to deal with our investors, our board, as we went from being a small startup of 10 people at the time that I started a year, five and a half years ago, to being a public company with a drug that was recently approved, has just been an incredible education, an incredible journey, um, and the opportunity to do this and even more impactful things, uh, which is something that we all share is just an enormous uh uh, challenge and uh, just something that's extraordinarily gratifying. You know, I I would say today that the, the, the topic that was assigned to me is is a little. Uh, it's a good thing none of my teammates are here. For those of you who have me, it's a little bit presumptuous. My uh, real topic that I think about when I when when I think about talking to this group is really the story of Zulresso. Um This is a drug that was just approved uh, two weeks ago uh, for postpartum depression, and. It it, uh, exceeded all expectations, and I'll tell the story about how we got there, a little bit about what the uh, interactions with the FDA were like, how we thought about bringing the drug forward, uh, a little bit about the science, and hopefully I could do that in the next uh, 33 and a half minutes. Um, I can spend hours, as all of us can, talking about our technology, but we're going to focus specifically on this. Um, By the way, if you ever have one of these approvals, and it makes the kind of media splash that this did... Uh, it really is an overwhelming experience for inside the company as well as for the KOLs who work for us. And uh, uh, one of the groups that weren't mentioned but the public relations groups already uh, have an enormous job keeping us both uh, present as well as in the public eye when it's necessary. So first and foremost, everyone hears the words postpartum depression. Often celebrities will tweet about it, often in the past tense. This is an enormous medical problem. Um, 400,000 women, 400,000 women in the United States every year have postpartum depression. And only 50% of those are ever diagnosed. A small fraction of those ever receive treatment. um, And 20 to 30% of those are severe. When I say severe, there are psychiatrists in the room, these are people with major depressive episodes that meet all criteria as if it's major depression. uh, Hopeless, helpless, often suicidal. uh, Has an enormous impact at a time when a person is expecting to be at their absolute finest. Uh, blindsided, absolutely blindsided in ways that that are hard to describe. Um, And what's amazing to me, and for all of us in this room, that this has never been the focus, not once been the focus of a drug development program at large companies. This is in the face of antidepressants being some of the most successful commercially uh, products that pharmaceutical companies have made. So why is that? I mean, among other things, it was sort of a, a, a problem hidden in view. And on, another, on another, another side, the science potentially wasn't there, really, to go after it in the ways that we have. Now, I'd love to say that, as a psychiatrist, it was really the unmet need that drove us directly into this area. That's, in some sense, the case, but not entirely the case. It was really about the mechanism in the story of how the company was founded. So, and, and, and that's a story about the mechanism of action. Uh, when the company was founded, Sage, in 2011, late 2011, 2012, um, it, the, the, the founder of the company, Steve Paul, had brought some science that he had worked on 35 years ago at the NIH, something that uh, he wasn't ever really able to bring forward at Lilly when he ran R&D there, and that was the mechanism of neuroactive steroids. These are compounds that are endogenous, um, that, that modulate the GABA system, which is a mean uh, neuroregulatory system in the brain, um, in very subtle ways. It's different from benzos, it's different from the things that you think you might know about GABA or anti-epileptics, but an extraordinarily finely tuned system in the brain. And we you'll see on the on the left-hand side, and this is rat data, but the human data look exactly the same. allopregnanolone, which is the endogenous ligand for this particular extrasynaptic GABA receptor, rises very dramatically during pregnancy. So when you hear, and maybe you can think back to your hippocampus of Uh, Medical school, hormones go up, and then they change very dramatically at delivery, and that affects mood and so forth. This is really thought to be the driver of that. It's a GABA-positive modulator. It slowly, slowly, slowly goes up over pregnancy. During the last trimester, it spikes. That's made by the placenta. And that rapid decline um, is when the placenta is delivered. It's that very rapid shift that does affect mood, and this is now 80% of women, there's a lot of loom in the room, 80% of people after they've had a child will have very um, dramatic but transient mood disruption. That's not what we're talking about. That's baby blues. What we're talking about are those people that can't then bounce back. Uh, And and I said 400,000 women a year get stuck. Mood is depressed and they really can't cope. Um, We often say people are suffering in silence. They really don't have a place to go. And even when people talk about it, and you can just reflect on your own personal experience, it's almost always in the past tense. Oh, it was really bad for me postpartum. I didn't have anybody to talk to. I would go into my OBGYNs or the pediatrician's office. I'd sort of keep it together. But there isn't any real place for such patients to go. So uh, as we all know, you develop a drug that would potentially work in that area or does work in that area, and enormous energy gets catalyzed around a, a, a problem. And you know, the, the, the most insidious part of this is not just that it affects mom and ability to function, can't get back to work. This has long-term effects on the kids. It affects bonding. You know, Children of uh, parents with postpartum depression, moms, often have uh, learning disabilities and depression later in life. Affects the other uh, children in the house, spouse, and so forth. So, this is a huge problem um, that was looking, really looking for people to attend to it. The mechanism through which the, the drugs that SAGE works on, not just Zloreso, but all of them, is through the GABA system. It's the main uh, inhibitory brain network. I could spend about three hours on this slide. I won't. What, what I need to say is that simply. We're hitting receptors that are different. We're hitting these extrasynaptic receptors. It affects the overall tuning of the system as opposed to moment to moment transient changes. So, sleeping pills or antiepileptics, those all hit these intrasynaptic receptors. And what's unique about uh, all of the drugs in our, in our class is they hit these extrasynaptic receptors in meaningful ways. So, here's Brixanilone, that's what it looks like. Um, is, 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 it has had many names, so in, in, when it exists in your body, naturally it's called allopregnanolone. Uh, when it was in the discovery and non-clinical phase, it had a special name, SGE-102. That's special and secret, not anymore. Uh, then it was Sage 547 for a long time of its life. Brixanolone is its USAN name, and now brand name is Lresso. Um The other other stakeholders that weren't mentioned before is our legal group, uh, who were not happy with me using a brand name here uh, without the registered trademark colors and so forth, which are all being finalized right now. However, um, it's it's an endogenous molecule. So our first molecule is really the parental molecule. What's What's unique about it? And people have been hypothesizing the role of allopregnanolone in postpartum depression for a long time. It's insoluble. It's not a medicine that would be typically used for um, a mood disorder or anything else. Um, We needed to find some way to solubilize it and infuse it IV, and initially we were interested in understanding and using it as a tool compound in healthy volunteers and in patients to understand how best to uh, develop our other compounds. We have a large chemistry group, they're developing a big chemistry library, many drugs that are orally bioavailable, long half-lives and so forth. Um, And this was originally conceptualized as something that might be useful for very, very rare uh, disorders. We were looking at ICU disorders, status epilepticus was one area that we were interested in, Um, and then using this to explore how extensible the mechanism might be. Um, The areas that we were looking at at the time, and this is when I joined the company in 2013, it's our first IND, were uh, as diverse as, as I said, status epilepticus, postpartum depression, essential tremor, a very common movement disorder, but the list of GABA, uh, potentially GABA-impacted uh, indications was was enormous, and we had to pick the ones, and I, I can say this in a room of chief medical officers, that represent the interests and proclivities of the people that were making the decisions at the time, as well as the science. I mean, we do, as physicians and chief medical officers, also have an impact on the selections of indications based on what's important, which is a very exciting part of this as well. So we you know, the company at the time when I joined was interested in epilepsy, anesthesia, uh, some areas of, of movement disorders and so forth, and pretty much the first thing I said, and this is the only thing that I can claim in this whole thing as being uniquely is, you know, we have a responsibility to do postpartum depression because of all the thoughts about allo as its um, uh, pathophysiologic relationship to postpartum depression. Um, and I had to fight tooth and nail. This is now. I should share this. I had to fight tooth and nail for the extra million dollars to just do that open label study. It was not part of our initial strategy. Um, and I we had a, a celebration two days ago. And I reminded the chief the chief financial officer about that discussion, um, as well as the chief scientific officer, who told me there's no way in the world it would work. Um, See, so yeah, I get to do a little bit of that now. They're not here. They're across the street. <laughs> So, so what did we really do? So you know, one of the, one of the unique ways that, that we do neuroscience research, and I don't know if there's a lot of neuroscience people here. Anybody, anybody does neuroscience and psychiatry? So you know how horrible it is. The animal models really don't do a great a justice, particularly in psychiatry, and they're all geared towards monoaminergic mechanisms, older mechanisms, and it's kind of a very self-referential way of doing bottom-up drug development. In the case of uh, Sage 547, this was an endogenous molecule which gives you enormous flexibility. So this is getting into some of this, this new indication stuff. It gives you enormous flexibility with the FDA to go straight from discovery formulation, non-clinical, with a very, very small package. You know, we were dosing patients at the physiologic levels that, they, that women had been experiencing during third trimester of pregnancy. Every woman who's ever had a baby has been exposed to our drug. Every fetus... Uh, that was ever born has been exposed for months and months at a time, and that's true in every species. So, enormous benefits being able to move very rapidly from early discovery, a little, you know, proof of principle in animal studies, to directly into clinical trials at physiologic doses. That was a, a huge step forward for the company in terms of, uh, you know, I'll say it over here that's value step up, but it also gives you the opportunity to test the drug right off the bat right off the bat, and that's what we did. You know, We were doing status epilepticus studies, we did this PPD study, we did a central tremor, we did a few other things, and part of the hope was one of these things is likely to hit if the drug is as active and in ways that we think it is. Let's do it. So The PPD story is the one that ends up being you know, most linear in retrospect, so I'll tell that story as if that were the only, way, the only path to go, um, but suffice it to say we were really thinking about ways to extend the mechanism at the time first study was an open-label study, again, for the psychiatrists and neuroscientists. Uh, I, had to, I had to endure the jeers of my colleagues and my old academic friends who said that's not the way you do drug development, you can't really do open-label studies, what can you do with those things? And I didn't have enough money to do both arms, so we do open-label studies. Um, originally conceptualized as 10 patients, open-label at a specialty center, one of the few places in the country is at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Uh, that has an inpatient unit for, specifically for women's behavioral health. I'll say that, again, in case you missed it, there is only one hospital in the United States of America that has a unit specifically devoted to treatment of women's behavioral health and postpartum depression, which means that there's no place for people to go that will allow the babies to stay in a nursery, the moms to have access to the children. This is just an absolute you know, shame. This is not true in the rest of the world, but it happens to be true in the U.S. In any case, they were willing to do the study. And uh, we originally thought, ten patients, we'll do ten patients, we'll see how it goes. And uh, I'll remember this, you know, to to my retirement, the PI called me, it's Open Label Studies, she just started dosing the first patient, she volunteered, and you're not going to believe it, she was ready to give up her baby for adoption, and now she's sitting in the, you know, in the day room having lunch and talking about what a bastard her husband is, but she looks great. Symptoms went from severe symptoms, which, which, by the way, is usually a sign of health. Uh, you know, when people are withdrawn, they're not eating, they're not sleeping. You know, you've seen people with major depression. We're 120 people. Uh, fully 40% of us uh, in this room will have experienced a major depressive episode in our lifetime. Um, so her symptoms went from being severe. And when I say severe, I mean, this is like the, the far end. I mean, she's really at, at an extremis to having essentially no symptoms at all over the course of 24 hours. In two and a half days, she was done. This was an IV infusion, very odd uh, formulation, something you would never think about to use in uh, psychiatry. It was inpatient units, an IV, it's postpartum depression. So all of those pieces were outside the norm within the field. And I think this speaks to what the topic is about. I know there's another session about this. Um, but the data were very compelling. Of course, it could be a placebo response. Let's do it again. Next patient, same thing. Next patient, same thing. Next patient, same thing. And, uh, you know, the questions come. It's got to be a placebo. There's no way in the world a drug could work like this. No way. Uh, and you get a bunch of experts together, and they'll all tell you, oh, yeah, you know, and I give, you know, aspirin, my patients get better like this. And then you look them in the eye and say, not like this. Not like this. You could even You can look at all your trials. Nobody actually has placebo responses that look like this. But you still have to do the studies. We used Bayesian logic, I used Bayesian logic. We were gonna do 10 patients. We already had a 40% remission rate. It's higher than any approved antidepressant. So we were able to save a little bit of that million dollars by stopping the study after four patients because we weren't gonna learn any more information. We were gonna go forward based on a 40% remission rate no matter what. Let's not keep doing it. Let's not waste time, energy, resource. This may be very important. So we did a phase two study. Phase two study. So now we're a, you know, about a 20, uh, $20 million dollar uh, pre-IPO company, so we're still sort of counting every little penny. Um, this study was a one-to-one randomization, same dosing paradigm, and we were able to sort of get up enough juice to do 10 patients per arm. 20 patients. Who does a 20-patient study in, in depression? Nobody. Uh, too small, high placebo response rates, it's absolutely going to fail, there's no way in the world this is going to work. We treated patients for two and a half days. Why? Because that's what worked the last time. Uh, we weren't going to spend a lot of time fussing with should it be one day or three days or five days or seven days. We've got one. It looks good. Let's test it. So, this is what it looks like. This is 20 patients. Uh, the top line is placebo. The bottom line is drug, and in this scale, uh, the vertical axis downward deflection is improvement. And if, I, I, we sometimes we have other slides where you can actually superimpose the patient line on top of the one from the open label study. they're identical. Patients and the drug responded within a day uh, and moreover, and and again, it's not a scientific talk, but their, their symptoms remain symptom free long after the diffusion was done. Um, and that's not seen. that is not seen in psychiatry. It's, it was never seen before in postpartum depression, um, and we think What's going on is we're really touching the mechanism uh where where these patient you know where the, the pathophysiology lies. Very rare in psychiatry. So here's where it gets interesting. You know, these these data we, we you know again, rare for psychiatry. We were able to publish these in Lancet. It was received an editorial. We packaged this up and went to the FDA and said, Hey, we think we were onto something. So, first fast track. Then we were, They were granted breakthrough therapy designation, and that was a huge benefit. Now, in biotech companies, everybody wants to have breakthrough because somehow investors think this is a great thing, and so it's like the good housekeeping seal of approval, and if you're an oncology company, you need to have it. Very very rare in psychiatry to have a breakthrough program. We were a brand new company. We didn't even know what we were really going to get for our efforts. But what we did get was enormous attention. Uh, We were able to have access to the agency continuously as we were working on our plans. Um, And, you know, the meetings, and and we've all been in these meetings where everybody's sitting across the table and you're kind of having an adversarial discussion. Uh, Our first meeting, which was this breakthrough therapy meeting, was scheduled for an hour. Uh, After two and a half hours, the people were banging on the door. The the agency didn't want to leave. The women's, you know, division didn't want to go. And finally, we had to settle on a program because we were all just really enjoying thinking through what to do. And the the mandate was, do this, do this fast, do this efficiently, and make it happen. So that's what we did. So two studies, two studies. That's it, that's what we agreed. One did some approach dose ranging, uh, the 60 milligram dose, the 90 milligram dose placebo, so that sufficed for dose ranging, and one other in uh, patients that were somewhat less severe. Those are the two studies and uh, you'll notice a few things that are not part of that package. Long-term safety is not part of the package. What we were able to do based on the data that we're using since so we're only dosing for two and a half days, all the rules about acute treatment apply. Uh, patients didn't require additional uh, retreatment. The, the anecdotally, of course we only have data out through 30 days, anecdotally patients didn't go on SSRIs, they just went back home, went about their business and felt better. And that's, that was kind of what was so exciting about this, did the two trials. We were able to get both of those studies enrolled and completed in, uh, in about nine months, about nine months total. So here's the data. Uh, the bottom line in orange, now these are our, our corporate colors, um, the, the, uh, that's the patient group. And again, uh, very rapid improvement, uh, the blue line is placebo. Uh, not surprisingly, placebo uh, group with high expectation and a lot of visibility in- increased, um, but we're seeing deltas here um, that are unprecedented in psychiatry. Uh, a five or six point delta at the, at the primary endpoint after two and a half days uh, would compare to, uh, for Prozac, about a one and a half point or two point delta at the end of eight or ten or twelve weeks. And perhaps more importantly for patients, this is this represents about a 50% remission rate, so patients become symptom-free, and about a 76% uh, response rate, meaning 50% or greater improvement. So really impactful data. If you're not accustomed to seeing these kinds of data, um, and very consistent response. You have now seen the entire data set that was included as part of the registration for Zul-Russo. Um, and. And, what's, what's in, and all these data are published. So the open-label was in, open label data were in a specialty journal. Both phase three studies as well as the phase two were published in Lancet in separate articles. Um, and then the discussion is, well, you have this indication. It's 400,000 women. It's a relatively small uh, data set around the studies, of course. Any statistician will tell you that the likelihood of this being, by chance, is essentially zero. Um, and how do you ensure safety? Well, we we're, we were fortunate because we were already knowing that the patients were exposed to these, so it wasn't really about tox. Now, I haven't talked about adverse events, but I, I ought to. Um, so, very low adverse events rates overall. The, the, one, the one adverse event that was of concern is some patients became over-sedated, so it's an IV infusion, it's GABA, it can be somewhat sedating during the time of infusion. So as a result of that, we do have a REMS. This is only gonna be administered inside of a certified facility. Patients will be checked, there's a pulse ox and so forth, and we do know, based on our two arms, that if you lower the dose, patients who experience these uh, do fine, and then they can continue the infusion. So that, from our perspective, was very much acceptable in the sense that we were able to get a very efficient program all the way through. The issues of, of what to do about a new indication, You know, it comes down to data, strong data, strong mechanistic hypothesis. Really, you know, there was no need to do fancy, uh, you know, anything fancy with the data. They were straight one-to-one randomizations or one-to-one-to-one randomizations, you know, using very straightforward statistics allowed for us to do, you know, any amount of pooling we wanted. You could look at the studies independently. You could look at them combined. Every single one was positive. It's very unique. There's never been a failed trial with with Zureso. Three studies, it all worked. So it, it ended up being just how are we going to get this to women? How are we going to get this out into the world? Um, and some of the things that would otherwise come up in psychiatry is this really a separate entity? Is this really pseudo specific? Can we really make a claim about postpartum depression? What about the men? Which I can imagine you can imagine how that was, how that played out with our KOL during the FDA meetings. Um, all of that went away because of the pu- urgent public health need. So I'll just do a few, say a few more words um, about this, and then we can open this up for questions. Um, when you're dealing with an entirely new indication and an entirely new way of delivering medicine and an entirely new mechanism, there are enormous challenges beyond, the, you know, beyond simply demonstrating that the drug works. You know, this is now new pathways to care. Uh, is it psychiatrists that deliver this drug or is it OBGYNs? Who does the screening? Where do they get treated? Do these people really need to be in an inpatient psychiatric unit? Uh, what about infusions? Typically, IV lines aren't run on psychiatric uh, floors out of concern for other patients' safety. Uh, it challenges the entire system. That's not a reason to not do it. You know, that's, just, that's old thinking. You know, the, the, the deal that patients get for an IV infusion is they get better in two and a half days. So think about your friends, relatives, perhaps yourself, who needed to take antidepressants, and you live in this world of ambiguity. Six, eight, 10, 12 weeks, you have no idea where the drug is really working, would you have gotten better otherwise? You know, you would absolutely know, our patients knew. You know, now, you know, well, we are approved, the patients that we ultimately treat will know, get better in two and a half days. If not, you move on. There's no opportunity cost to getting better in two and a half days, and who doesn't deserve that? You know, we talk to payers They say, well, you know, antidepressants, they're cheap, you know, set pennies on the dollar. Yeah, you you have that same, you know, if it's your family member. They're going to wait two and a half weeks. Who who does that? You know, so beyond the scientific part of this, excuse me, which is you know, now we have a mechanism that works fast. We have other drugs in the pipeline that are using the same mechanism. They're oral, easier to use. They're further behind. We are exploring them in the men, in case you're curious. Um, but there will never be a first drug ever again. That was the first one for postpartum depression. And sort of moving into new areas through good science, following the science, you end up doing things that are extraordinary. <laughs> Um, and the kinds of challenges that you otherwise might anticipate either from the FDA or from uh, regulators or payers become conversations as opposed to sort of an adversarial piece. And, you know, that's been our experience, um, you know, and, and one that I would absolutely share. If, you really, if, if, if the data are on your side and you really are talking about something new that no one's addressed, there are absolutely ways to go after this that are impactful and, and allow for an efficient development program. So uh, I'll give a commercial for something that's important to me. Uh, psychiatry as medicine, I would say psychiatry is medicine, and the way that you demonstrate it is by having treatments that actually work and are demonstrably uh, efficacious. And that's, a, you know, that's something that's very important to me as a scientist. It was important in my clinical career as well as in a pharmaceutical company. And uh, it leads to broader thinking. You know, we now are exploring this mechanism, not with Zoloresso, in major depressive disorder itself. Think about how wonderful it is to do the following study. We're testing an, an analog drug that's orally bioavailable in patients with MDD. We already tested it worked, worked. Um, but the whole point of that study is a win-win. Either we have now opened the door to an entirely new mechanism of treating major depressive disorder, huge, great for the company, great for patients, great for all of us, or the study didn't work. This is a mechanism that's specific for postpartum depression. We can understand more about the biology and come up with ways to really impact people's lives in, 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 in even more patient-focused ways. That's where we are right now, in entirely rethinking the mechanistic uh, physiology of major depressive disorder and doing it through just rigorous clinical and now non-clinical, data, uh, non-clinical studies. So, you know... Uh, I'll end by just saying this has been the door through which we've opened a very broad approach to looking at neuroscience, you know, we're dealing with fundamental mechanisms first with GABA, uh, we have other programs in NMDA, but the approach that we've taken starting with clinical data, starting with open-label trials and very practical, very simple and very rigorous studies um, is a way of exploring and moving into areas that, where there's been uh, really very little innovation over the last 30 or 40 years. I um, think it's important. I think there are great examples within neuroscience where this, this approach applies. And my, my, my expectation is that these kinds of uh, thoughts would, would extend to many other areas that have thought to be intractable. So with okay. that, I would thank everyone for their attention, and I'm happy to answer questions. Thank you. Have about five I'm just making an announcement for everyone to everyone know that there's a map here and here for Q&A and we do Q&A if you could just announce what company, who you are and what company you represent. Thank you. Steve, thank you very much. Laurie Smaldone, CMO, NDA Group. So you didn't comment on the newborns and breastfeeding. Can you give us a little understanding of, of do they all fall asleep or what yeah. happens? Mm-hmm. Oh, so, such an interesting thing. So there, so part of, part of this is, is there's actually FDA guidance on how to establish um, uh, whether or not it is safe for breastfeeding. And there's something that I said very early on, and it's a, I won't take a quiz, with a but the drug is not orally bioavailable. So while it's freely passable into breast milk, the, the fetal exposure is essentially nil, and so the labeling reflects that. Um, it's unlikely. You know, you can't ever really say it's safe for breastfeeding, but the the, the 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 infant dose is well below the one tenth. It's like point zero zero five of the mother's exposures. So from a pure tox perspective, Hi, Trey no Hugh, CMO, that, 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 that's no risk. Hi, Hugh, CMO of Johns Therapeutics. Congratulations first, this is just okay. incredible. Yeah. Um, you had a slide where you talked about building the commercial infrastructure, but since for commercial success, you're actually proposing changes to the way healthcare is delivered. Yeah. So I'm wondering, I'd love to hear a little yeah. bit more about your role in that, and do you have medical affairs yeah. reporting to you, and what role are they playing? Because I can't see a commercial organization being able to impact that as fully as a medical one. Yeah, so so Medical Affairs is very, they, they, don't, they did not report to me, they did when we were a baby company, but you know, the organization has grown right, right now. As I say, we have four drugs in development. It becomes a huge team. Um, however, uh, there's a few things that we're implementing. We have a patient services center in North Carolina that'll be a front door for, for patients. Uh, we do have the opportunity to certify sites. Uh, one of the things that happens if you work in the, in the CNS and then drugs get into the brain is you do have to go through this... Um, uh, DEA scheduling process. So we have a three month window between approval and launch where we find out what our what our scheduling may or may not be. However, we're using that time to identify certified sites, get them up and running and so forth, which is all OK from the FDA. Um, but the commercial organization, is really, it's very much a medical engagement. And they're focusing first on centers of excellence places where they're already self-identified um, champions at the hospital, to the p committees, as well as for working on uh, unique ways to deliver the drug. Likely, it'll be very few patients that are admitted to psychiatric units. There are a lot of empty beds that are in OBGYN units and OBGYN floors that have the monitoring nurses, they manage IV lines all the time, these issues around turning down the infusion rate, which seems to be such a... Uh, a challenge for psychiatrists to imagine is sort of part and parcel of what happens with psychiatrists and what happens in like real life in hospitals literally every day. So you know there's, there's a lot of creativity there and likely a lot of innovation in that space and I can tell you the response from hospitals is just... Hi Steve, Laura Williams, uh, Head Development at AMAG, uh, actually reporting to one of the co-chairs. Sure. Um, here I just wanted to, uh, two quick questions. One is I'm wondering what the impact was from a regulatory perspective. Um, with uh, you guys being able to say that, look, we'll know, you will know right away whether or not this drug is effective. How much did that play into sort of the discussions? And then secondly, from a mechanism of action standpoint, have you guys done um, additional studies beyond, you know, what you, you you know, the preclinical stuff from an imaging standpoint? So, yeah, so, so two questions. First off, um, you know, the, the great part about working with the, aid, the, the psychiatry division at the FDA is they know what data look like. Even the labels on antidepressants are very, very murky. You know, we're very explicit with our data. Um, I think that really helped because they were, they actually, when we went, we were sort of a baby company and they think we sort of haven't been around the block. You know, what was coming back to us from the division director and even from Bob Teppel, I can show this now, as you know, this is like the best antidepressant we've ever seen in terms of overall data. Yes, we know that. That's why we're here. Um, so, so there, so there, there was there, there wasn't a lot of controversy about the data. It was all discussions on how to make this uh, development program as efficient as possible. Now, we all have staffs. We have people that love to make things complicated. Well, shouldn't we do three studies looking at intermittent dosing and five doses and. That was not something that the agency, and I can share these now because we're, we're done and we're approved, they were not interested in that. You know, We do have post-marketing commitments. We'll share those that address some of the complexity. But the real discussions were very, very straightforward. How can we make this available and, and do it in a way that was efficient? Um, and I'm sorry, your other question about me Well, so a lot of it is now back, we're backfilling. So we've been doing some non clinical studies uh, looking at the, the real mechanisms, what's happening with these gamma receptors and internalization. Uh, Wei and so Lin forth. from but Nectar yeah, Therapeutics. therapeutics. Uh, great story, uh, yeah. wonderful yeah. Yeah. story. Congratulations. My question is uh, since this is the first drug to be approved uh, in postpartum depression, Thank you. what was your discussion with that regarding the primary endpoint of the study? Yeah. So the good part was they're established. So the symptoms themselves are major depressive symptoms, and so we were able to apply those directly. Um, and there's only a few uh, endpoints. We use the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. There's a MADRS. There's just two scales that are widely used, and uh, the center. UNC uses for screening the HAMD, and so we have the data on HAMD, and we just made the argument that we're going to use probably what is the oldest and most uh, validated endpoint. We had to make some modifications because some of the questions refer back to how you felt versus last week. So we had to have some negotiations around how to tighten that timeline because what we were seeing is, you know. I didn't get into this, but statistically significant differences within hours. Yeah, thank so you. We Diego Caravitz from Fulcrum. Great work. So my question has to do with your what did you learn discussing with the agency about the I saw the duration of infusion. Didn't seem like you had to explore that. You your dose ranging was looked very simple, yep. but you had loss of consciousness. Uh, how how did you get away not exploring that further? <laughs> So, th- th- so these were the kinds of things that we discussed up front. So, uh, just to put this in perspective, there was one SAE in the entire development program. Uh, this was a person who had a, a, a 20 minute episode of, quote, loss of consciousness. Other, we were sort of over, I would say, overly scrupulous in the way that we described that. That person would be, quote, deeply sedated. They were arousable even while it was happening. Um, and the, the, it was a really a benefit-risk discussion. You know, if we can do this in certified facilities where people are accustomed to sort of managing um, sedation, there was a long period of time where patients were becoming increasingly sedated, and the instructions, if were followed by the investigator, would have been to turn down the infusion rate. And so this is where the REMS is as opposed to doing further dose expiration. Um, so that was number one. It was really it it was a, it was the discussion around benefit of getting this out to patients versus risk. Now we did have an advisory committee meeting, I didn't get into this, it was a a peak event in my professional career, but we did have a 17 to 1 positive vote overall for benefit risk. However, some of the ideas, and we'll announce them when when this is all public, um, around simplifying the dose schemes, thinking about other doses, those those were some of the ideas that were kicked around as part of post-marketing commitments. Thank you so much, Steve. Yes, that was really you. wonderful. And as a epidemiology fan, i love to hear that Bayesian logic was used in the development process. So, it, it, it was, was exciting. Uh, it, it yeah, yeah. so, yeah, yeah. Let's give a round of applause. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the 2019 Chief Medical Officer Summit. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.